Welcome one and all to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find us at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a diverse array of topics to discuss today. Excellent show coming up as usual. Stephen Garrett, our film critic, will be here to talk about two movies, um, House Party, the House Party reboot that is uh, was produced by LeBron James and is out now, and A Man Called Otto, which I reviewed on the site and Stephen has not seen, but I'm going to tell him all about it and all about Tom Hanks as a grumpy old man. We're also going to have Paula Schaefer here to talk about Velma, the disastrous Scooby-Doo expanded universe show from Mindy Kaling that is now airing on HBO Max. But first, Omar Gayaga will be here to talk about a video game adaptation also airing on HBO Max. It's The Last of Us, and people are loving it, and Omar is loving it, and we'll be right back after this brief musical interlude and this brief clip from a trailer from The Last of Us to talk about it with Omar. seen the world so you don't know you keep going for family i'm not family no your cargo why are you so important somewhere out west they're working on a cure i think what really impressed them was the fact that i didn't turn into a monster if she so much as twitches, don't. The first big hit of the TV season is here, of the 2023 TV season. It's The Last of Us on HBO Max, an adaptation of the very popular video game series, uh, which has been out for a while. And this is a, uh, a rare, successful adaptation of a video game, a very serious video game. And a very serious show. I um I don't really play video games much, and I don't like. I'm kind of soured and tired of apocalypse fiction, and I'm kind of scared of zombies. So The Last of Us is not my bailiwick. However, I knew instantly when I saw that it was coming that Omar Gayaga would be the perfect guy to write about this for Book and Film Globe because he plays video games. And uh, at least can tolerate zombies, as far as I know. So Omar is here to talk to me about The Last of Us. Hello. Hi, Neil. Yeah, I always seem to get roped into these zombie shows. I've covered The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead. Uh, I've, I think I've written about Station Eleven. I, I, all these apocalyptic and or zombie shows. I, <laughs> I seem to get. Uh, hey, man, you watch them. My I do. And I play the game, and I play zombie games too. I play Left for Dead. I play. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in. It's in my wheelhouse, I guess. I mean, For The Last words. of Us, is not, it's not exactly a zombie show, right? Like, the, the premise is that society, um, base as we know, it ends because some mushroom spores go berserk, something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very cleverly uh, wrapped around in, in, in a scene that's not in the video game that, that is made for the show. Uh, we It opens, the very first episode opens with a, a 1960s-era talk show where some scientists are ta- are talking to the smug talk show host about you know their one of their theories that you know that that 
fungus could evolve into, you know, if, you know, the far-fetched notion that, that the earth could, could warm up somehow, you know, could, could lead to that. And uh, it is rooted in some scientific fact that, you know, about whether um, fungus that can take over bo- the bodies of ants and sort of basically, you know, use them as puppets, uh, but extrapolating that onto, onto humans. So that's sort of the, the scientific premise of, of the show. But, you know, it's really just a very elegant wraparound to kind of say, okay, well, we're going to tell you why first and then to go into the, the story. But the story is really less about zombies or outbreaks than it is about, you know, how does humanity, you know, go on? How do, how do, how do, the, how do, how does society get rebuilt or not rebuilt? And really the central relationship between the two main characters uh, who are played by um, Pedro Pascal and Bella, I'm blanking on her last name, Bella. Lugosi. <laughs> Lady Mormont from uh, from from uh, oh, Game of Thrones. Right, right, right. Okay, a- an excellent actress, a scene stealer from the uh, late seasons of Game of Thrones. So, all right. So, there's a fungus among us, and um, basically, the, the premise is that this girl or teenage young woman uh, is seems to be the the missing link that can help um, help end the plague that has destroyed humanity. Yeah, there's some back and forth about you know that that she's been bitten but not uh, infected. So that you know, there's some hope that she might be able to save humanity somehow. So so Joel, uh, the Pedro Pascal character, is is charged, and and uh, a woman named Tess, played by Anna Torv, uh, are charged with transporting her to out of Boston, out of this militarized zone, uh, and and meet up with the, the resistance or whoever it is that that's going to transport her. But then you know, if you follow if it follows the video game plot. A lot goes wrong. <laughs> the journey yeah. is much, much longer than than is anticipated. And really, the 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 heart of the show and the the game, I imagine uh, that they'll be the same. Is is there's a relationship between the two of them that that they develop this father daughter, uh, Joel and and Ellie uh, develop this very strong relationship, and and you as the viewer get pulled into that. Um, you know, the, this going from oh, I can barely stand to be around you. You annoy me too. I would die for you. You know, it gets that, it gets that deep uh, into, into uh, relationship territory. So it's so, it's so interesting that a video game um, would be that deep into relationship territory that, you know, the people who have played the game and I've been reading about the show quite a bit uh, since we, mm-hmm. we uh, published it. People who play the game are deeply invested in these characters from the game. Oh, oh the ending devastated me. I, I cried, you know, at the end of, uh, the video game, it's, it's, you know, especially, I mean, you know, people are going to say, if you're a parent, you're, you're going to love this. I mean, it, it definitely evokes that feeling of how far would you go, um, not only to protect your child, but to protect their psyche about, you know, their, you know, what, what, what's happening, not to spoil anything with the ending, but, you know, it, it ends on a moment that is just very, I feel like in narrative fiction, just a very important landmark moment in video games where like, You've, I'd never seen an ending like that in a video game. Something that was so true to life and so um, so profound. Um, and to combat it at the end of a zombie game where you're shooting and, and stealthing around, uh, you know that that is a studio that really cares about narrative. I mean, they also did the Uncharted games, which you know not not the not the greatest film adaptation of that one, but those games are also very strong with narrative and great characters and good writing. Um, Naughty Dog is the studio behind it, and they, they really care about that. They really they do great motion capture of actors. They do great voice acting. Uh, I didn't mention this in my review, but the soundtrack is incredible. The the, the same guitarist that did the, the music for the game does the, the the TV series, 
and it's it's beautiful music. I mean, it's it's just well done all around. And Craig Mason, who we haven't mentioned, uh, one of the brains behind Chernobyl, is uh, the the co um, showrunner with with the game developer, and it shows. It, it has Chernobyl DNA in it for sure. It feels mm-hmm. like a lot like like what was great about Chernobyl on HBO. It's so it's, it's so interesting because you know video game adaptations have a do not really have a great history, you know, <laughs> so. especially. Especially serious ones. I mean, you know, you can you can make an argument for like wacky fun of a Sonic the Hedgehog movie or or, or, or whatnot. But I mean, vi- you know, serious video games, ones that are in, in you know Assassin's Creed, um, Resident Evil. I guess I guess you could make some argument for for some of those movies. Prince of Persia. Most of them are are, are pretty much crap. You know, yeah, and, and, and the adaptations that, you know. don't the adaptations don't line up. Resident Evil, the game, is not known for its writing. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, a lot of these games do, do not start as great source material. You know, they, they might have great visuals or great elements that would make a good movie. But, um, but this game starts, this adaptation starts with the pedigree of it's already a really well-written game. I mean, the, the writing, the dialogue, the interactions between the characters are already really good. You know, so yeah. all they got to do is not screw that up. And, and from what I'm reading, I mean, there is going to be some some tangents and some things that aren't in the in the um uh in the in the game that are going to be in the series but i i trust these creators i trust the guy that did chernobyl i think he did fantastic work on that and i and i think the you know the, they've got the the game creator so deeply involved who also wrote the game um speaks to you know we're in good hands i feel like we're we're in, in it would take a lot i think for them to take it off track where they screw it up i i don't see that happening i, I think i think if it's it's going to be a pretty faithful adaptation with some tangents uh, but as long as they get to where they're going and that land that ending, it's going to, you know, I think people will be very happy with it. You know, my only, co- my only caveat, personal caveat for this show is that I am uh, deeply tired of the literary apocalypse that, that continues to be fed to us, you know, with station 11 and the walking dead and um, you know, the road and other sort of similar books. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm tired of seeing sort of well-made adaptations of the end of humanity but you know again if you're a fan of this genre and it is a definitely a genre it sounds like this is a a, a top level uh, version of that kind of story yeah i burned out on the walking dead a few seasons ago i mean right around the time that rick exited the show i exited the show as well i did, just uh-huh. did not keep following it you got on the or, horse with him or did he, did he die i don't remember i don't care there was some you sort know? of helicopter or something that, that that airlifted him out of out of getting almost getting killed or something okay. i don't even know anymore okay Fear the Walking Dead, I wish to watch, um, but Station Station Eleven, I thought was quite good because it did not focus so much on the apocalypse part of things. It focused on like how do we, you know, what happens to these characters twenty years later, and th- that's exactly what this show does. Is you know, twenty years later, where is Joel? What happens to Joel? What, but there's still an apocalypse. It's still an after the apocalypse thing, and I. I you know, I, don't, I, no. I just don't want to do, I, I, maybe I just don't want to deal with it. <laughs> it is, it is bleak, but like I said, I mean, really what the draw for me for this show is going to be that relationship between Joel and Ellie, just how that develops organically over time, how they, how they, that paternal relationship. And, and I, I really like Pedro Pascal in it. I think, yeah. I think he's going to do fine work in it. I mean, I think, uh, as I said in the review, he's sort of the, the Jeremy Renner with range, uh, but he, yeah. he's good. He's really yeah. good. And just well, in this first episode, he's, he nails it. So yeah, he's I, definitely I, a, um, you know, he's definitely a uh, reliable star, you know, Wonder Woman, 1984, notwithstanding, you know, every, everyone, <laughs> everyone deserves to miss once in a while, swing and miss once in a while. Um, and he was just he dealing swing, with he, 
He swung big on that. One. <laughs> really. He was dealing some really, really nastily bad material in that case. But you know, he's the Mandalorian, uh, iconic in that sense. And you know, now he's got another show under his belt, um, another hit genre show under his belt. And it does seem to me like The Last of Us is going to get at least another season, if not more, and is going to you know be a memorable uh, benchmark in sort of this current age of quality TV. So yeah, he's he is he is becoming nerd catnip. For sure, he is, he's definitely straddling those nerd uh, uh, metacultures. So, yeah, Pedro Pascal. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, The Last of Us comes with uh, Omar's highest recommendation and therefore Book and Film Globe's highest recommendation. We trust his taste. And uh, Omar, I thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. hope you enjoy it. I hope you do get to watch it. Uh, thank you. Every time you think the Scooby-Doo Expanded Universe can't hit a new low, it does. It has hit rock, rock, rock bottom, deeper bottom than the introduction of Scrappy-Doo back in the early 80s with Velma, a new interpretation, postmodern interpretation of the Scooby-Doo mythology now airing on HBO Max. Velma has received nothing but critical scorn since it first appeared, and we added to the pylon with a piece by Paula Schaefer, who is here to talk to me about the living hell of Velma. Hello, Paula. Hey, Neil. Yeah, I'm a contrarian, and so I really wanted to like Velma. I went into it like, no, this can't be that bad. And it was worse. Worse. Worse than you imagined. Yes. Yes, it now, was. Now, the, the, in the, here's the thing. This is a, basically a Scooby-Doo show. I mean, it's a cartoon with the characters from Scooby-Doo in it, more or less. But there's no Scooby-Doo. Correct. There is no Scooby-Doo at all. Yeah. So, you know, that's what people liked about the Scooby-Doo was the, was the talking, goofy, hungry, crime-fighting dog and his stoner friend. That's what they liked. Not, yeah. not Velma. Not, not a um, – who has now been reinterpreted and reinvented as a um, sexually fluid woman of color. Who is very angry. Uh, like mm. Velma is lovable and goofy and, you know, like, oh, my glasses, I can't find my glasses and, you know, silly, upbeat. And in this, she just is bitter and scornful and disdainful and very unlikable. As are from, I, I couldn't bring myself to watch it, as are the rest of the characters, Fred and Daphne and not Shaggy, but a pre-Shaggy Norville who doesn't do drugs and is black. Correct, correct. Uh, yeah. yeah, sober Shaggy just is, you know, just kind of there. Fred is like the um, rich white guy that nobody likes, and he's very spoiled and pampered and oblivious and, like, rude and sexist, and Daphne is a mean girl. I, I, I think they just wanted to make a different show, and somebody said, well, what if we just crammed this into Scooby-Doo? Yeah, this is a Mindy Kaling project, uh, but you know, you seem to think she's not entirely to blame for this mess. Yeah, I mean, she's worked with Charlie Grandy a lot, and they do the Sex Lives of College Girls, which I love, which is also on HBO Max. I really enjoy that show. Um, but this one, she's not writing. She didn't, you know, she's she's one of the producers, but this is more her voice work than anything. 
you know, there's this whole um, genre of um, comic books where they reinterpret classic characters. You know, there's a, I think it's a Snagglepuss is like a Tennessee Williams style alcoholic lawyer in the Deep South. There's a dark Scooby-Doo universe. There's a dark Flintstones universe. So it's not as though this is out of the uh, – it's not like this has never been done, right? But right. It, I, I haven't seen anything like this in, in TV form. I mean, not for like, I mean, there's Riverdale, which is the Archie comics reimagined as Dark Archie, and that's super successful. And then the spinoff of that, they have the Nancy Drew that is like the dark, edgy, mystical Nancy Drew. Right. And there was a dark, there was a dark Sabrina on Netflix mm-hmm. starring Kiernan Shipka, which was fairly popular. Yeah. So it's been, it's not like they're break, they're breaking new ground, so they don't know how to do it. They just decided now we'll do it this other way and we'll make it dark and serious, but somehow make fun of the fact that we're making it dark and serious and that'll be hilarious. And it's not. Yeah. It hasn't connected with, with anybody, with any audience, with woke audiences, with non-woke audiences, everybody seems to hate it. And the thing that really gets me about Velma is that it's ugly to look at. I mean, the, animation to me feels like like something you would have watched um on the internet in like 2002 yeah it it is very ugly and supposedly it's inspired by the animation style of into the spider verse oh no i don't see how that is possible at all it's like they maybe they described the animation style of into the spider verse to a machine that then ai replicated it but there is nothing warm and human about it at all. Right. Well, you know, Into the Spider-Verse is very uh, creatively animated. And like you said, has a warmth and a humanity and a whimsy to it, which is, which is why it is so popular. You know, I, I just I just don't understand the impulse behind making dark Scooby-Doo without Scooby-Doo. And, and, yeah. and, and here's the thing, you know, as you said in your review, this is the kind of thing that Adult Swim has been doing for decades, right? Like, like Robot Chicken has been doing for, you know, taking, taking our, um, you know, pop culture favorites and adding people getting beheaded and dismembered and, you know, what, having odd sexual fetishes. This is not um, un, untraveled ground. Correct. And it's already been renewed for a second season. So apparently HBO Max just likes having a show that people are talking about. Mm. Well, people are talking about it. I'll give you that. And, you know. My name is Velma Dinkley. And I've decided to finally share the bone-chilling event that drove me to assemble the greatest team of spooky mystery solvers ever. This is my story told my way. She has no brain! And it starts with a murder. When I see something, I wish if I can't convince people I didn't kill Brenda, I'm going to be arrested. I know, but I also know how to find out who did kill Brenda. I think it has something to do with drugs, which I hate. Hey, Fred. Do I know you? It's Velma from school. I have a disease where I can't recognize people who aren't hot. Is it called rudeness? I have an illness! Hey, Daphne. I need a favor. Why would I do that? We're not friends anymore. We're nemesises. Nemeses. And that's why. Listen, for all you wondering why the police have not yet caught 
the serial killer, it's because it's a ghost. Is there a chance that the first couple of episodes are a disastrous setup for something that's going to get better, that there may be some fake ghosts and and people having their masks taken off and saying, I would have gotten away for it with it too if it hadn't been for your meddling kids. Is there a chance they're going to they're gonna somehow re- uh, remedy this or rescue it? I think it would take a lot of work. I mean, I guess there are still a lot more episodes and they've crammed a whole bunch of ideas into the two that are out now, but I don't want to see if they get there. Well, here's the thing, too. You know, and, and this show is already being so reviled that a big rumor spread on the Internet that they were going to introduce a Scooby character, but that it was going to be a black woman. And the show is so bad that people believed it. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's true. It doesn't turn out to be true, but it seemed inc- like I floated it to you and you're like, well, that's plausible. <laughs> Based on the show and what they've done. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. And there's a whole... Uh, conspiracy theory around it that Mindy Kaling is a Republican and she's made this in order to make people hate woke culture to turn people Republican. And that seems plausible to people too. Like that's how much people are reacting to this. That Velma is going to turn people into Republicans. Yes. Yeah. That's no, 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 no one who's watching HBO Max is going to turn into a Republican. Probably not. It's okay to criticize woke culture, and even if you do, that doesn't mean you're a member of the Republican Party. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get that at all. I understand, you know, and the thing is, the people on the right are, are, are getting on this show for being the sort of um, kind of a nadir of woke culture. Yep. So, a disaster all around. That's Velma for you. Paula, thank you so much for writing about it for us, and thanks for talking to me about it today. All right. Scooby-dooby-doo. Wait, no, wait. Oh, oh, what what was it that Scrappy-Doo said? Puppy power. The movies are back. No one can argue otherwise. Last weekend, or at least last weekend as I'm talking, five films in the U.S. box office cleared the $10 million mark, uh, which is a lot. And, you know, that puts the box office 43% ahead of the same period a year ago. And those movies included Avatar 2 and Megan, which we've talked about here before. Puss in Boots 2, which we haven't talked about here before, but is very popular. Um, Plane, which is a kind of a genre thriller starring Gerard Butler that I have not seen yet. And A Man Called Otto, starring Tom Hanks, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, But first, let's talk about the movie that didn't make $10 million, did not quite get there, is a remake of House Party, the semi-legendary 1990 uh, comedy. And Stephen Garrett saw the new House Party and is here to talk to me about it. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Yeah. So this is not a party you really wanted to go to, (laughs) I, I wanted to go to. Once I showed up, I was like, oh, music's loud, the people aren't interesting, I want to leave. Um, yeah. I love the first House Party. As a, as, a, as a white man, can I just say how much I loved House Party? Of course. Uh, it was fantastic. I mean, it really, clearly, my enthusiasm speaks to its crossover appeal. It came at a time where, uh, where black cinema 
you know, was basically, it was like Spike Lee and it was these heavy movies. Like I think Boys in the Hood came out like a year later, you know, um, there was like New Jack City that came right after that too. They were, they were basically like dark genre movies or like, you know, um, you know, um, just, just real movies that, that expressed a lot of pain in that community, which absolutely uh, was, was necessary and, and clearly part of the zeitgeist. But then House Party just lands out of the blue and it's joyous and it's wonderful without selling out its characters, I feel. I mean, I kind of made mention of, you know, for the film wonky people reading the film nerds, you know, I, I said it was like uh, Charles Burnett directed a John Hughes movie. There, There's, you know, there's a real sense of um, that it was rooted in reality, but the joy was rooted in reality. These were real characters. You felt like they were real characters. He wasn't selling anybody out or, or going on some crazy flight of fancy. If anything, he makes fun of it because right at the very beginning of the movie, you see that they literally blow the roof off the, off the house. Anyway, the point is we're talking about uh, a movie that spawned four sequels, which I didn't even know, like until I started, you know, poking around trying to dig up stuff about the house party franchise like direct to video sequels oh my god totally i think the second i might have seen the third i definitely didn't i think those were theatrical and then there was a direct to video fourth movie and then a direct to video fifth movie that came out like maybe 10 or 15 years ago and they all starred kid in play no they didn't the fourth one apparently didn't the fifth one did um very very strange very strange but this but this new house party you know the that was almost it was a, I think it was a studio film, but it was almost like an indie comedy. But this new house party is like a big a big budget. I mean, LeBron James made it essentially. He was the main producer, totally. uh, the executive producer. You know, he is you know well, of course, one of the great basketball players of all time. But he's not exactly a uh, an underdog at this point. Right? Uh, no, no, and you know. He's a fan, though. He's a fan of the original, and I, I think what he loved in it was what everybody loved in it, and whatever what made it so universal and so so um, so endearing to so many people. I mean, look, I think also like part of the reason I was I was curious to see this new version um, because I liked the original so much, and of course it prompted me to go back and look at the original again, and I just fell in love with it again. I mean, this is a movie I've seen like a dozen times; so I could watch it a dozen more. Like it just is so a joy, as you said. That's a perfect word for it. It's so joyous. Even when the cops, the white cops keep pulling everybody over, you know, they found humor in that incredibly naggingly pervasive, like dark aspect of, you know, black life. Um, well, you know, and the, the thing is that the original house party, those are middle class kids, right? Yeah. Oh, they're totally. And they're kids. Very. They're middle class teenage kids or high schoolers. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, I mean, the young men who throw the house party in this one, they're throwing it at LeBron James's mansion, right? Well, and they're not kids. And, and I mean, I think this was something I was going to kind of ding the movie for. And then I, I kind of looked into the sequels and like kid and play grow up clearly over the course of 20 years, you know, or the 25 sure. years that they were in these movies. Um, so they aren't really stories about teenagers quite as much. There isn't so much about kind of youth culture for lack of a, a better square term. I couldn't sound more white right there. Uh, or old, you know, but the thing is there there are still our black teenagers, middle-class black teenagers who want, who want to be throwing parties, you know, when their parents go out of town, it's not like that, you know, having just raised a white teenager, but you know, the dynamic doesn't change ever. It doesn't change ever. And yet they felt like with this one, it's like they needed to supersize everything. They needed to be bigger, better. We got LeBron, like LeBron is willing to like make himself, 
the butt of the joke or maybe like the star of the film, you know, even he shows up at the end, but for the most part, he's, he's not seen. They just show his house off. Um, and this just feels like a kind of comic, uh, comedy that's been strip mined already over the past 10 or 15 years with, you know, shows that deal with real life people who are doing an exaggerated version of themselves. Oh, or like, or like you mentioned in your review, uh, the Donald Glover show Atlanta, which, covers a lot of the same ground, but with a much more artistic flair to the point where there's actually two, the, the guys who wrote it are writer, were writers on Atlanta. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting that clearly like they kind of wanted to see what would happen. Like I think the intent was there, but then maybe people got cold feet or they didn't give them free reign or maybe they reined it back and said, hey, you know, actually we want this to be a little more mainstream and a little more accessible. So it's, it's neither fish nor fowl. But you also mentioned your piece, which I thought was interesting, you know, when you, that black comedies and well, non Kevin Hart, black comedies have gotten much more artistic and, and sophisticated. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, what was that night school? That thing was horrible, but it's like, you know, you got like, you mentioned the last black band in San Francisco and sorry to bother you. The films of Jordan Peele. And of course, Atlanta, you know, and even to some extent, a TV show like Abbott Elementary, you know, these are like much more, you know, sophisticated ways to present black life than what House Party is offering up. Yeah, I mean, I think House Party was the beginning of a trend. And, and uh, when it came out, the, its celebration of hip hop, you know, its embrace of it and its its kind of uh, amplification of it, it was it was still pretty. Um, I think I said it was in its infancy. Maybe it wasn't that. It wasn't in its infancy, but it, you know, but it no. was still, but it was still like considered something vaguely underground. And uh, House Party was such a mainstream hit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think rap and hip hop dominated the music charts in 1990 the way they did in like by 1995 or 2000 or today or like, do today or for sure today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is it's not real. I mean, it it's not really an underdog culture anymore, right? It's really not, you know, I mean, there's a real innocence to it that's kind of delightful. But to your point, like every year there's a new set of young teenagers who want to run out of the house and have a house party and fall in love or get laid or or whatever. And that's that really those were the goals. And I, I was about to call them modest goals, but those are those are pretty high goals, depending on how old you are and, and where you're from and what you're what you're um what your life is like, you know, never, and I never, think, never easy to get laid as a teenager. <laughs> I don't care who you are or what year it's it is. True. It's true. And this one is just, there's, I don't want to call it cynical, but I think it just overshot the runway or went ahead of its skis, whatever phrase you want to do. I mean, it just, everything was so supersized and exaggerated. And I mean, you know, and all the, the, uh, the, the cameos from, you know, it's like Maya shows up and, kind of sweet talks this co- this stoned a very weirdly aggressive koala into mm-hmm. submission which is just like what huh i mean it's kind of funny but it's super random lena yeah. waits shows up and does a crazy riff on roots and you're just like what what movie am i watching and then i mean i think the thing that actually kind of saves it to a certain extent is uh kid cuddy his his character i mean he plays himself but again it's one of those exaggerated versions of himself where he is so like on another planet and his conversations with everybody are just hilarious. And then um, <clears throat> he keeps saying like, Hey, I wrote a poem for LeBron. Can you give, where is LeBron? I want to give him my poem, you know? And that of course pays off at the end in a funny way, which is fairly obvious. You kind of see it coming. But anyway, at one point they lose something of LeBron's and they have to get it replaced. And he's like, Oh, 
I know the, the Illuminati has a copy because they have a copy of everything. I'm a member of the Illuminati. Let's go to another party. And that's also where it kind of jumped the shark. I'm like, you're leaving a house party to go to another house party? Like, how many, is this a nested doll of house parties? But they go to this Illuminati party, which is like very broad, played for laughs. But there's some generally funny, weird, bizarre things that happen there that, again, Kid Cudi like just completely sells it and makes it hilarious. And he even said, I was reading an interview that he gave, that he said like, I didn't want to, they asked me if I wanted a cameo. And I said, no, I want to actually play a part. Like, don't just give me a cameo. I want something to do. And that's what turned into his role, which I think is probably the best kind of part of the movie. Very strange. All right. Well, House Party, um, you know, didn't really prove to have much of an audience. And it, you know, the, on the big weekend, it was, it was part of, it was, it was a release. They didn't put it out on HBO, HBO Max like they said they were going to. They put it out in theaters and it just did not hit. It is off the zeitgeist. Uh, hey, I think hey, I think it did better than Fableman's. You know, I mean, it's not like you know what I'm saying. Like, it's not that far off the zeitgeist. I mean, my theater, my theater wasn't crap, wasn't empty. Like it was pretty. It was like half full. Like people are going to see it. I don't think yeah. it was a bad decision to go instead of going straight to HBO Max. They were like, hey, let's fill the theater in early January. Yeah. You know, I think they were right. like, what's going to be filling the theater? What Megan and Avatar? Who's going to see that? Let's put out House Party. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So to transition. From uh, House Party to the movie that they couldn't have been less black, really. It's an, <laughs> it's uh, a man called Otto, uh, an, an adaptation of a Swedish no- uh, movie that is an adaptation of a Swedish novel, and it stars Tom Hanks. So white, very white. Um, and a man called Otto is uh, I don't know. I, I reviewed it in the um, on the site this week. The whole neighborhood is falling apart these days. Get out of here. Nothing works now that you're gone. I brought you some food. Okay, bye. Are you always this unfriendly? I am not unfriendly. Okay, you're like a warm cuddle. What is that? Looks like he's yours now, Addo. You are not taking over my bed. You think you have to do everything on your own, but no one can can't stand watching one idiot try to teach another how to drive. It's lesson time. Thank you. Clutch in and brake. Brake, brake. The car is stopped. I almost hit the car. Mr. Ryan's a hybrid. My life was black and white before Sonia. She's always going to be with you, Otto. Hi, Otto. <laughs> My father used to smile like that. I'm not smiling. Exactly. I have a cat. I found it to be... It's kind of a weeper. It's kind of a, I would, I don't, I don't really, it, it stars Tom Hanks. So I didn't want to say it was a multi-hanky. Um, oh! But it was, you know, it's like a, it's kind of sentimental glop, uh, greeting card sentiments. Like, you know, and it's kind of the tradition of like Mitch Albom's work, you know, with Tuesdays with Maury or the five people you meet in heaven. But, you know, people are really responding to uh, it because, even though it's corny and, you know, and kind of cliched in some ways, it's also very uh, sincere. Mm. And grownups, you know, who are kind of, uh, uh, most of the people in the, in the theater were older when I went. I, you know, I, I mean, admittedly, I went um, to an early show. But um, I think no matter when you go to see A Man Called Otto, it's going to be a largely older crowd. And they're kind of people looking back on their own lives with a, you know, mixture of nostalgia and regret, which is kind of what this you know, this movie's about like Otto is a, um, he's a widower. Uh, his, he, he has a, 
his beloved wife, Sonia. I mean, Sonia died of cancer after many years after losing their baby when they were in a bus accident on their honeymoon. Oh, God. Or, or like their later honeymoon. They wasn't on their She wasn't pregnant on their honeymoon. You know, uh, but, but they took a extended because, you know, these are working people. So they couldn't afford a honeymoon at the time. And so then they took a special trip to Niagara Falls. And then there was this dramatic bus accident, you know. And so they, these are, um, I mean, those are those are melodramatic plot twists, you know, that make a, a Douglas Sirk movie or, or even an episode of All My Children, you know, seem kind of subtle. And, uh, you yeah. know, Otto, he's just like, but he's like, Tom Hanks plays this like, really competent guy who knows how to fix things. And he's kind of, he's a penny pincher and he stands up for the little guy against rapacious corporations. And, you know, it's like a, it's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the whole thing is, is he's not racist at all. He's very warm and accepting to this transgendered uh, teenager who he, they, they they live in this like complex of townhomes and some area of Philadelphia uh, appears to be Philadelphia. It's always snowing. Um, and it's not always snowing in Philadelphia, but it's always snowing in this, in this movie. Um, and that's important because, you know, Otto always is out shoveling his walk and everyone else's walks and he does his rounds around the neighborhood and makes sure everyone recycles in the right way. He keeps things in order. And I think that there's a, I don't know, there's a segment of the, um, movie going audience that responds to these kinds of sentiments, right? Yeah, I think so, you know. I mean, uh, not everybody wants to see something crazy, you know, like Tar, for example, which I think is a tremendous movie. But, you know, it's not an easy watch or, or a, a, I don't want to say pleasant or reassuring, but, you know, uh, or accessible, really. But uh, sometimes people just want to see a, a relatable story, you know, that has, has people that have been in their own lives, you know, that they recognize. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's not like it's not like he doesn't have its darkness. There's some grief, and he's always trying to kill himself. But there's also like this Latino family that lives across the street, and he, you know, even though he's grumpy, they love him, and eventually they warm his heart. And there's babysitting scenes, and you know, there's just all this, you know, there's like stuff involving power tools, and you know what I mean, like <laughs> and, and a little bit of healthcare drama. It's like a, it's like a. It's it's not quite a soap opera, but it, it it's just like, yeah, exactly. Like it's it's slice of lifey, and I don't know. I mean, it's so simple in its values that it I, I almost found it annoying. But at the same time, it does like tug at the heartstrings in a genuine way. I mean, it's one of those movies where um, if you look at the Rotten Tomatoes ratings, the critics didn't hate it. I mean, it's got the sixties or whatever. But the audiences are like high nineties. Ah, uh, there you go. There they you go. love him. They love it. They, they love it. And you know, it, it, and it's kind of the way I felt like, you know, about Green Book, which won an Oscar. Right. You know, Green yeah. Book was to me. I, I watched it. and I was like, this is corny as hell. What are we doing here? But I think people responded to it's just like, it's um, simple embrace of friendship. <laughs> you know. Well, and also, you know, you got like. Yeah, I, but you also have great actors, right? You have Mahershala Ali, you got uh, Viggo Mortensen, Viggo Mortensen this yeah. one, you got Tom Hanks. They can sell yeah, the shock. Well, that's the thing, you know. Tom Hanks can like can sell anything, right? I mean, he's not not everyone loves him. I put a, my review up on my Facebook page. People were being like grumpy about Tom Hanks, but I'm like, come on, he's one of the great movie actors of all time. I mean, and if you look at like the late career of Tom Hanks, you know, I mean, he's Mr. Famous. Rogers, dude, Mr. Rogers. Well, Mr. Mr. Rogers. Yeah, there's Mr. Rogers, but also like that submarine thriller Greyhound where he played the yeah. woman who 
that that movie was great. And also, I love News of the World, where he played this kind of you know crotchety old old west storyteller. You know, is sort of tasked with taking care of a um, you know a young young orphan. Uh, and you know that movie was was super good. And it's like and it, Colonel Tom Parker. Who can forget that? Well, well, that's one of the <laughs> worst performances in movie history. Bar none. I don't even know what that is. That's just a curiosity. Like what? And, and it, 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 that was insanity. But you know, you can't. You, you know, I thought he, I thought he was supposed to die of COVID. I thought he was supposed to be the first victim of COVID. But then, then he recovered and came back from Australia and made all these damn movies. He just doesn't stop. There was that one, on, and then there was that one on um, on Apple TV Plus where he played the guy. After the apocalypse, I, who's living with the robot? I, I didn't even see that one. Oh right, yeah. The, you know Tom oh Hanks God, robot apocalypse movie, yeah. So you know it's like you know you, you, he hasn't. Um, he, he's not entirely predictable in the choices he makes. He can, he can slot him into any genre. Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, you know, uh, have we seen him evil? Is there an evil Tom Hanks movie? Um, well, it was the, the Lady Her Killer. It's somewhat, somewhat. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah, then he, he's turned in some. There's some real turkeys in the filmography, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, there is. Really but you know, he. But you know, at this point, you, you you have to give him respect. And 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 I think a man called Otto is like the signature older Tom Hanks role. You know, I mean, and he is like, he is old in this. You know, he plays a, he plays it old and grumpy. You know, and uh, he he brings it home, and you know. Uh, but it, it, you know, it's nice to see, despite the movie's many corny flaws, it's nice to see uh, a movie that it does not had no effects and no affectations. Really, it's just kind of a, a ni- nice old fashioned movie that you could go see with with your mom. Hey, you know, I, I wanted to ask because you, you mentioned Man Called Ove in the in your review, and you say it's not quite a shot for shot remake, but I I didn't see that. Uh, yeah, that movie. Did you? Was it? I did. I saw pretty it. Pretty close. Did it? Did They're it? Very similar. I mean, yeah, there are some differences. The, the family in okay. a man called Ove is uh, Middle Eastern or Persian or so, some, you know, and then this family is Latino. There, there's different cars that they talk about because it's Europe versus the States. There's a few things, but like the it's it's essentially the it's essentially the same movie. Are there scenes though that are kind of shot for shot? I'm always kind of fascinated when that happens. Yeah, well, yeah, there are. Does, the, the, the shoveling of the walk and the flashbacks uh. and the suicide attempts, and yeah, it's not. I mean, they're they're really like. It, I mean, yes, I, there are differences, um, but I'm I'm not a student of a man called Ove. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know, what I mean? you know or of the Frederick Bachman novel that it's based on. But I mean, when I Let's put it this way. When I was sitting in the theater watching, I was like, I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Even though I hadn't because yeah. it's, it's basically the same movie. You know, there's a few things. They make a few concessions to modern American life. There's a quote unquote social media journalist who plays a role um, in, in helping Otto out. And then there's a transgender teenager, like I said. Um, and those those weren't in the in the original. But that's, you know, that that's like uh that's just trying to um, bring something into 2023 when in reality, this movie easily could have been set in the mid eighties. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you know, it's like they flash back to um, Otto's life with his beautiful young bride. And it's like, it's the 1970s, but it really feels more like the 
fifties, you know? Well, it's kind of interesting though. Cause I mean, you talked about how kind of, you know, movies are back, right? I mean, you know, hundred million dollar weekend and man called Ove or Otto, Otto. was, uh, you know, a, a modest contribution to that box office, but it did a lot better than people thought. And it is bringing in the older folks who everybody's written off and said, Oh, COVID scared them away. Can't, COVID can't scare us away forever, Stephen. <laughs> no, but I guess it speaks to the fact that people still want to gather and have these emotional experiences that are very accessible and very... Uh, people you know, still like going to the movies. It's what I've been saying the whole time, the whole Thank time you. during COVID when I was being called a murderer because I was going <laughs> to see guys, I was going to see Russell Crowe and Unhinged and Vin Diesel and Bloodshot and Freaky and whatever the, all the other crap that came out during COVID, uh, Tenet. And all that stuff. Like I was going to the theater being called a murderer. And I was like, no, I'm not. And movies are going to come back. And you'll be sorry you said that to me. And I think (laughs) with a man man called Otto, I finally have my revenge. All right, Stephen Garrett, I'm going to let you go. We'll talk to you very soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Stephen Garrett. A man called Otto and House Party are currently in theaters. And I don't think we'll be too hard to find on streaming in the months to come. Also, thanks to Paula Schaefer for talking to us about Velma, which we are not going to be able to get away from anytime soon on HBO Max. And Omar Gayaga for talking to us about the early days of The Last of Us, which looks to be a big hit show for HBO. I'm Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I'm also the host of this podcast, to which you are listening and which you are enjoying. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading the site. Thanks for going to the movies. We will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N dot com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. The Bookhouse Milburn dot com. <laughs>